0: is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is a wonderful blessing that we have from God. It is a beautiful relationship that God has provided and that he established and that he even regulates in some ways and it is a tremendous thing that God has done. And even though we may sometimes joke and in maybe some ways that we probably shouldn't joke, about a ball and chain and things like that. Marriage needs to be treated with dignity and with honor, and that's what the scriptures teach. And we see that, that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to understand, is that marriage provides this blessing and this honor, honorable relationship in a way that protects us and protects our souls, whereas adultery and fornication, God judges and condemns. And throughout this year, from time to time, we're going to be looking at some things that I think focus on the family. And we're going to uh, look at some things, and we're going to begin with marriage this morning. And as this is something that God has provided and established and that He has seen fit to oversee and regulate. Marriage should be respected and honored and cherished, and even it needs to be defended from time to time. And so any honor that we give to marriage, it needs to first of all be biblical. And that's what we need to understand this morning is how do we defend marriage how do we understand marriage marriage is something that is thrown out and it's it's very common in but we need to understand it in the way that god understands it we need to understand marriage in the way that is truly biblical to have a biblical understanding of marriage because marriage is not primarily established by the legal system it may be recognized by the legal system it may be something that we honor even by the courts But marriage is first and foremost established by God in the court of heaven. And that is what we need to understand and what God says about it. And so what we see is that marriage is between a man and a woman. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, I'd invite you to be turning there. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been asked on this occasion by the Pharisees about divorce. Divorce. And they are asking Him if it is lawful to divorce your, your, your wife. And Jesus goes into some answer there. But He makes this statement in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what you begin to see is that Jesus goes back to the creation, to the very beginning. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And what He begins with is this principle that marriage is between a man and a woman. The marriage union goes all the way back to the creation. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and you see there that there is only Adam and Eve. There's only the two. In Genesis chapter 2, and verse 18, even before there were two, there was only one. And it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so God creates woman. In verse 20, The man gave names to all the cattle into the birds of the sky, into every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All that you have here in the very beginning is a man and a woman. God made them male and female. I think from the outset of how Jesus is defining marriage and going all the way back to the very beginning. You have marriage as a relationship that is established between a man and a woman, not between a man and a man, and not between a woman and a woman. Marriage is something that is defined as between a man and a woman, and homosexuality is against God's plan. But you, then you have marriage is between one man and one woman. In Genesis 2 and verse 24, this man and woman, they're the only man and the only woman on the earth at this point. And you see that it is then that God blesses and establishes this marriage union and marriage relationship. I think the implication that we are supposed to see is that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That polygamy is against God's plan. And of course you see in Genesis 2 and verse 24 that the two become one flesh. There is a one flesh union that is established here in this relationship. And I think that certainly would involve the sexual union. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as the Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand that sexual immorality is against Christianity, against God's plan, and against the gospel, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 16... The Apostle Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. So I think certainly he is including the sexual union here between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And being joined to a wife restricts who you may have sex with. Adultery is wrong. Fornication, sex outside of marriage, is wrong. Sexual activity is intended not just for a man and a woman, that being any man and any woman. It's intended for a husband and a wife. I think we need to understand that properly. It needs to be in that one flesh relationship, that one flesh union. However, I believe that this whole idea of becoming one flesh is greater than just talking about sexual activity. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, and in verse, beginning at about verse 23, the Apostle Paul begins talking about marriage. And he talks about husbands and wives, and he is making this comparison with Christ in the church, and he's really trying to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church. And he does that through the mechanism of talking about marriage between husband and wife. And as you read throughout this context, he begins at verse 28. He says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." I think Paul is trying to help us understand about the marriage union in this one flesh relationship is that we go from talking about myself and talking about I and me, but I need to start thinking about we and us. I need to start thinking about what benefits my wife, not just what benefits myself. There has to be this change of mind and change of thinking. That's what is required in marriage. And as Paul talks in verse 28, he says, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. That marriage is about becoming one and sharing your life, sharing it with each other. And that is seen especially in our treatment towards each other, our attitude towards one another. That we have to set aside selfishness And we have to think about how can I better my spouse? This one flesh relationship is established in marriage. And it can only really truly be enjoyed in this way in marriage. And then we see a fourth principle. That marriage should not end in divorce in Mark the 10th chapter in Mark chapter 10 as we mentioned in this context a few moments ago in Mark chapter 10 and verse 2 some of the Pharisees had come to Jesus and they're testing him they're trying to trap him and they ask him is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and they're really trying to pit Jesus against some of the current teachings that were going on uh, amongst the Jews themselves. And then I think also they're trying to see if he's going to contradict what Moses in the book of Deuteronomy says and how it regulates divorce and things of that nature. Is Jesus going to contradict Then uh, They might have him there. They're trying to entrap Jesus. And Jesus goes through, and we'll talk about this some more later on, but Jesus, he has an answer to this. And it's really quite simple in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. End of story. Divorce should not end marriage. That's not what God wants. That's not what Jesus wants. And we'll talk about some exceptions. Come back tonight and we'll talk about divorce and how it's a huge problem. But divorce is very commonplace and it creates a whole other set of issues. But there's a principle that Jesus is trying to get us to see that marriage is... A permanent relationship. It is a lifelong relationship. That divorce is not the way out. And he says that what God has joined together, let no man separate. And that's the end of the discussion there, as Mark records for us. Now, Jesus goes with his disciples, and kind of in private, and they begin asking him some questions that Mark... Addresses some of that later when divorce even comes up amongst the apostles and Jesus. But Jesus is just very clear marriage should not be ended by divorce. And so these are some principles that we see just right here at the heart of what marriage really is. If we're going to understand marriage in a biblical fashion, this is where we have to begin. It's understanding, I think, at least these four core principles here. But the title of the sermon is Pursuing a Covenant Marriage. And the word covenant marriage, or that phrase, it's never used in Scripture. I will admit that very readily. But covenant is a biblical term. Marriage is a biblical term. And I believe marriage fits the pattern of what a covenant is. If you'll notice some characteristics of covenants in just some very general ways, that covenants are initiated for the benefit of another person. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, in verses 3 and 4, it says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him. That should say David. It says Dave. I think, Dave, I must text you too much because it, it auto corrected to you. So, <laughs> David and I are on a first name basis. I can call him Dave, you know. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. We have here that Jonathan makes this covenant with David. And you see a couple of themes here, actually. You see that he loves him. But then he says that Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And he gives it to David. David. Saul's, or or Jonathan's protection, his weapons, he's giving all of that to the one that he makes a covenant with. Because he wants these things that are of extreme value, especially if you're a warrior, if you're a fighter. Has extreme value. He wants that to go to the benefit of David, not himself. That's a huge characteristic about what covenants oftentimes do. They are intended to give help and benefit to someone else. Where I say, I don't want to use this selfishly for myself, I want to use this, or I want to give this to someone else. That's one characteristic of a covenant. Another characteristic is that we see that covenants are based upon steadfast love. In the book of Lamentations, in Lamentations chapter 3, you have where Jeremiah is is weeping and lamenting the the destruction of Jerusalem and how they have sinned and how they have turned against God's covenant and against God's law. And yet there is... Hope that God is not going to just completely and utterly abandon them because of God's word, because of God's promises, because of God's covenants that He has made. In Lamentation chapter three and verse twenty-two, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases; for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Yes, Jerusalem is suffering, but they're not abandoned without hope because God is faithful because of God's love, because of His loving kindness. Covenants are based upon that and they are kept based on that love. The covenants also have huge commitments. In the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. And these words of Ruth, as she is speaking these these words to Naomi, she is pledging herself, she is making a covenant, if you will. She is promising and making a vow and an oath that I am going to follow you wherever you go. Your God is going to become my God. But then it's really there in verse 17 that where you die, I will die. And she is going to see this thing through all the way to the end of her life. And she says, there I will be buried. And if anything but death parts you and me. You begin to just be impressed with this permanent relationship that Ruth sees that she is making there with Naomi. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, you see this idea of a permanent covenant established in Genesis chapter 9. And in verse 12, after Noah and his family have come off the ark, In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. That the rainbow in the sky is going to be this sign of this covenant, He says. Continuing on in verse 15, he says, And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. He uses terms like never again is this going to happen. It's an everlasting covenant that is described. That this is going to be a permanent statute, a permanent covenant. Something that God is going to continue to always follow. And then you have covenant relationships require accountability and forgiveness. In the book of Psalms, in the 89th Psalm, in Psalm 89... This is a psalm of David in which he is speaking about the covenant that God has made with David. And in Psalm 89 and in verse 30, God's covenant, he says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. See the permanency of this covenant relationship? And yes, if there is... This covenant relationship is a permanent one, but then there are some conditions, aren't there? And if my sons don't follow me, then God's going to punish them. Because a covenant requires accountability. There has to be some accountability that, between anyone who's in a covenant relationship. But then you see that God is willing to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. There's going to be forgiveness that's extended and shown. That's what's required in a covenant. That Jesus gave His life to establish a new covenant. And that new covenant extends mercy and forgiveness. God will remember our sins no more. These are just some general characteristics of covenants, but I want you to see how this begins to connect with marriage. As we looked at, covenants are initiated for the benefit of another person. You think about marriage and what is expected of a husband toward his wife. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. You see the demonstration of Christ's love there. That through Christ and His love, He improved us, right? Washing us and cleansing us. And that's exactly what a husband is supposed to be for his wife. He is supposed to not be looking out for himself. He's supposed to be looking out, how can I better you? And that comes through sacrifice, not through forcing her to change. That a husband has to give up something of himself. To help his wife so many times we think in the marriage relationship that well, I'm going to change him or I'm going to change her it's not how it's supposed to be it's about what can I do to make them better make their life better what instead of what do I get ask what can I give look to Jesus as the example and sacrifice of how to give. We see that covenants are based upon steadfast love. Husbands and wives are supposed to each love each other. Clearly there in verse 25, husbands love your wives. Very clear. Husbands who are commanded and expected to love your wife. That's not necessarily always having that mushy feeling. There are going to be times where you may not have that. You are commanded and expected to love your wife. And sacrifice for her each and every day. That you are expected to treat her in a way that Christ would treat you. Husbands have that obligation. I think it's somewhat of a misnomer that I've heard it said before that husbands are commanded to love their wives, but wives aren't commanded to love their husbands. Well, think again. In the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2 and in verse 4, when the Apostle Paul is addressing here how the older women ought to behave themselves and conduct themselves, it says in verse 4, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Wives are also expected to love your husbands, even whenever they may be unlovable. You need to love them. We all have an obligation to each other. Covenants are based on steadfast love and our love for... Our husband or for our wives needs to be a steadfast love that we're willing to extend and show. Of course, as we have seen covenant commitments are permanent, marriage is a permanent relationship. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7, In Romans chapter 7 and in verse 1, as Paul is writing about some things concerning the law, he makes this apt illustration where he says in verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another. That marriage is a lifelong commitment, and it ends at death. I would venture to say most everyone in this room, if you are married, that in your vows you said, till death do us part or as so long as we both shall live. That you are pledging yourself and you are entering into a covenant where you made an oath before God and before witnesses that you would remain married until death. Because that's what the marriage relationship is. It's a Permanent covenant. And if we're going to pursue a covenant marriage, we have to understand this critical point. The commitment and permanency of marriage has been under attack in this country and throughout the world, but especially in the last 70, 80 years. Divorce has become too commonplace. It's become too easy. We need to understand and appreciate the seriousness of the covenant that we took and we entered into with our spouse. And then of course, covenant relationships require accountability and forgiveness. We've seen that in In God and the covenant that He established with David, but we also see what Christ does, don't we? And we see how we are to model what Christ does. Notice in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, and in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That idea of imitating. It's miming. It's, it's just repeating what you see done. Yet You're supposed to mimic what God does. And so then he says in verse 2, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. If you want to know what it is to love your spouse, you look at Christ. You see what Christ has done. And that He loved us and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus loved us in that He gave His life for us when we were unlovable, when we were undeserving, when we were following after the course of this world. You see that Christ's love extends forgiveness and grace and mercy. And who in this room has not needed that at some point, especially from our spouse? That's why he goes on in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church. We need to look to Christ. We need to see what He does. In verse 27, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate standard for everything, and He is the example that we must follow, especially for husbands. And we need to look to Jesus and how He acts. Salvation under the new covenant, grants us forgiveness of our sins because of what Jesus has done. But we should also be willing to extend forgiveness and mercy and grace to our spouse. When we hurt our spouse, apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Humble yourself. If we do that, we're pursuing Kind of covenant relationship that God wants in marriage. Pursuing a covenant relationship and a covenant marriage will look for ways that we can benefit our spouse, not ourselves. A covenant marriage will be built upon reciprocated love towards each other. Where I love my wife and she loves me in return. Where we share that love and we build upon that love. And it's going to take the permanency of that marriage relationship into account. A covenant marriage will consider that. This is a permanent thing. That we made an oath and a vow before God we would not take an easy way out. A covenant marriage will extend forgiveness to each other. That's the kind of marriage that we need. The kind of marriages that we need in the church, in this country, and in our homes modeled in front of our children so that they can see what marriage ought to be like. And marriage is this beautiful relationship that God has established and that He has given us. And if our marriages are founded appropriately, if they are founded after the model of Jesus Christ, And we're going to help others, whoever may know us, see the love of Christ in our lives, and in our marriages, and in our homes. Where others may come to know Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who gave His life for us because He loved us. He loves you. He loves me, even when we sin, even when we turn against Him and not and do what is displeasing to Him. This morning, Jesus loves you. He gave His life to save you. He wants you to come to Him. We, At this time, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. That will be an opportune time for anyone that is not in a right relationship with God to be able to come to make their life right with the Lord. If you're not a child of God, if you never named the name of Christ, we encourage you to come this morning, believing in Him as a son of God, repenting of your sins and confessing your faith in Jesus the Christ who gave His life for you. Be baptized in water, have your sins washed away, you can become a child of God Cleanse of all your sin, white as snow. Maybe it is that you've done that. But you've turned back to the world. Your garments have become filthy with sin. You're struggling with temptation and trials. need the prayers of the brethren here. We're here to help you and encourage you in whatever way we can. If you're subject to the invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing